Marking its 40th anniversary in 2022, Blue Door is the largest emergency housing provider in York Region, providing life-saving support to children, youth, adults, seniors, and families at risk or experiencing homelessness. Along with offering emergency housing and housing retention support, in the past two years, Blue Door has expanded its service offering to further work toward preventing and ending homelessness through inclusion, the first supportive housing program for two SLGBTQ plus youth in York Region. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, providing supported skills training to help youth and adults break barriers to employment and secure meaningful careers in construction trades and launching in 2022 a health hub which will include a nurse and in-reach system navigator to help people regain the health and well-being needed to secure and retain permanent housing. Join Blue Door's mission and become part of the solution by learning more at bluedoor.ca. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home, a podcast dedicated to the issues surrounding homelessness and the incredible experts making a difference in the lives of homeless people. Remember to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you're listening and share it with a friend. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am your host, Michael Braithwaite from Ludor, and as always, we have a spectacular guest uh, lined up for this week's show. Before I get rolling, though, uh, I should tell you what's happening at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness, our partner. Uh, in this podcast, as well as what's happening at Blue Door, the Canadian Alliance just a week ago, and, and by the time you hear this podcast, will be a few weeks, has announced its new, or this year's conference, 2022, in Toronto. Don't you know? And now, they wanted to do this a couple of years ago. Of course, something called a pandemic got in the way. We've done a virtual conference. This conference is going to be a hybrid uh, kind of mix, uh, virtual, but also in person as well which is really cool to have it in. Very convenient for myself and my team uh, that it is just around the corner for us, a little south of uh, Steeles will go down. So if you're interested in attending that, they do have an early bird rate, so check it out online. Also, if you wanna be a presenter, if you have something to say, you've done some great work, some great research, uh, there's a number of different topics that uh, they're looking for presenters on. And of course, too, if you know, you're a sponsor or, or if you wanna get word out to people in this sector, is the best place to sponsor it is the by far the largest conference uh in the sector across the country so check that out at caeh.ca and what's happening at blue door right now lots going on i am really really excited that uh we are building a well we're not building actually the region of york is building an 18 unit transitional housing site on one of our sites that we will operate which is really cool listen uh you know normally it takes about 24 to 36 months to put this up uh, the region is doing it in about a year and a half, which is incredible. It's a modular build. Uh, it was done uh, through the support of the province, the federal government. So it's cool to see this happening in York region where it is truly needed. Uh, 18 one bedroom units and uh, York region, our community, Blue Door are thrilled for this to happen. But let's get to today's guest. Listen, it's not very often that we get to turn the tables on uh, someone from the media and ask them some questions about 
because uh, usually they're doing the, the question asking. But it is fun when we do that. The experiences that uh, members of the media, especially in this sector, have the knowledge, the, you know, working with government, working with uh, others or chatting with people in the sectors. It's incredible. I always enjoy these conversations. Uh, we have someone who I've known for quite a few years, uh, run to uh, different things. Uh, so I'm excited to have Jordan Press join us today. Now, Jordan uh, is a reporter for the Ottawa Bureau of the Canadian Press, CP, national affairs reporter covering Parliament Hill and social affairs with a focus on data-driven storytelling and access to information. If it sounds like I ripped that off of a website, I did. I read that. So i uh, thrilled to have Jordan here. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We always ask, uh, we, we ask different questions throughout, but we always start with the same question for everyone because it's a little different for everyone who answers this. And Jordan, that question is, what does home mean to you? So for me, it is, it's not just a place. It's, it's not just a structure, but it's a feeling. Um, it is a place where you feel comfortable. It's a place where you are with the people that you not only not only consider you know family but maybe you know people who are friends nearby so it is it, it's almost part of community and that to me has always been the feeling of home i didn't you know when i was growing up i we didn't we lived in the same houses for years on end my parents didn't move around a whole lot um you know we were so i grew up in toronto for those who don't know me and we grew up you know in a small bungalow and then we moved to a, a larger house when you know, my sister and I got a little older and even, you know, with my, my, my spouse and my family now, you know, we're not, we don't move around a lot. We haven't moved around a lot in our time in Ottawa. And so for me, it is, it is that feeling that when you walk into a place that that is the place where you feel comfortable. It is the place where you can be with your family and have laughter and love and, and health and happiness and, you know, maybe as my dog is right now sleeping on the bed next to me, um, you know, and being, like I said, being part of that community where you walk out your door and it's friends, it's neighbors who are there who are supporting you in different ways. And so um, I know sometimes we just think of home as a structure, but it is it is much it, I think it is it goes much beyond that to to really encompass that feeling you have of being of being not just in a house, but being and not being housed, but being home. Absolutely. Well said. And you're, you're, you're quite right. I think quite often we ask that no one talks about the structure, the roof, uh, the walls. They talk about things you mentioned, uh, that community feeling, the family feeling, um, a, place, a place of feeling of belonging and that word feeling. And I think uh, Adam, uh, Adam Vaughn said that what we talk about, of course, this is around uh, this podcast is based around housing and homelessness. He said, don't think of someone as a homeless person. Think of them as a neighbor without a home. And I thought that was uh, well put um, by it. But before we get into it, I have lots of questions. Let's take a step back, learn a little bit more about you. How the heck did you get into this work? Um, so, I mean, the, the easiest answer is my last name. Um, you know, it was either that or dry cleaning. And as you can tell, I'm not very good at that. Um, but honestly, the, the way I kind of fell into journalism was I, I enjoyed storytelling. Um, I enjoyed stories from a young age and as I got into, you know, and when I was in, I can remember being in grade six and having one of those writing challenges or writing assignments. And it was write a short story. And I think I tried to write like a, you know, a mini novel because I just kept writing. Um, and the same thing happened to me when I got to high school. I just enjoyed that writing. I enjoyed telling stories. And it wasn't really until later in my high school career that, or high school career, my, my time in high school, that I thought, 
what what could I do where I could just write for my and tell stories for my life? And uh, journalism seemed like a great opportunity, and it seemed like a fun a fun thing to do. So that's that's exactly what I did. So I I uh, I ended up. Um, applying to a couple of journalism schools, including to Ryerson University, the soon to be renamed Ryerson University in Toronto, and got into the journalism school and thought, all right, let, let's go. And that's kind of how I fell into journalism. And to be honest, after the first couple of weeks of school, I, I realized I this was what I wanted to do. This was this really was my passion. My passion was, was words. It was talking with people. It was telling their stories. It was trying to not just you know, tell, uh, you know, talk about, as one of my editors later on in my career would say, not just writing about edifices and institutions, but writing about people and trying to understand them. And, you know, it might sound a little, uh, you know, kind of a, a little highbrow, but, you know, the tell something about the human condition, right? These were all things that just started to, to evolve in me. And, and so when I left school, I was able to find some work, uh, landed a job at uh, full time at the Kingston Whig Standard after doing, I should say, after doing, you know, summer internships at, you know, places like my first summer internship was at the um, the Norwester in Springdale, Newfoundland, which is still, you know, it's a town of 4000 people. Like it was great. To, it was culture shock for a kid from Toronto. Um, but, you know, going from there to the Kingston Whig Standard and being there for a few years, uh, you know, going back to school, coming out of, you know, going after doing a, a, a graduate diploma and then working, you know, going off to post media in Ottawa and working there and then ending up at CP, which has just been like the National Wire Service. It's your stories, your stories have such broad scope. They go everywhere. And um, and so it's been this this fantastic little ride that I've been on since I was really, really a kid. And it all comes back to this idea that every day I get to tell I get to learn something new and I get to tell a story in either, you know, this, you know, maybe in a different way and, uh, and tell that to others. It's just, it's, it, that's kind of how I fell into it. And that's, that's what, and that's, what's kept me in, in it for, you know, probably now if we count, count my time at university, like 20, 20 something years, basically. Very cool. And it's interesting when you say that, uh, not at all where you're thinking in high school, this is the way I'm going to make money. It was, this is what I'm good at. This is what I love doing. And I follow that. And, and you know, when you do that, uh, good things happen. And you talk about the stories, about the people. Uh, let's talk a little bit, 20 plus years of telling stories. Um, let's talk about some of them that have really uh, stayed with you. And I know every journalist says, that this is a story that I, I often think back on that has really stuck with me and, and why. Yeah, and that's a, it's a good question because when you when you write as many there there are they sometimes all blend together but um i think about one um i mean one that comes to mind when i first started at cp and i was just getting used to covering the the housing and the homeless beat uh the affordable housing and homeless beat i should say one of the things i did was i looked at the homelessness stats that the federal government has for um and, and I, I forget the, the exact name of it, but I remember the acronym HIFAS, right? Which is all the all the data they get from um, from shelters and they pull it all together. And so I was looking at, I, I just, I filed an access request for that and got all these reports in different cities. And we ended up um, going to Thunder Bay because of some of the, the issues that were there at the time. And I think this was 2016 or so. So it was just after the liberals had been elected in late 2015. And 
I spent a, a spent a couple of days there, and I remember at one point as I was reporting on this, um, I can't remember exactly how, but I was told, you know, head up to this one agency kind of in the in this part of the city, and they said, oh, you know what, there's some there's a rooming house nearby that I think you should take a look at, and there's some people that you can talk to about their housing situation, and it was in a it was an old church that had been with a basement that had been you know had been kind of subdivided into um, different rooms and so and with a with a common space and I remember walking in and speaking with the three residents who were there and it was just I mean the conditions were just were, were deplorable um, you know myself and the photographer and actually one of the one of the women from the agency that came with us uh, we were just we like the place was just was, was dirty and when we went upstairs to like the the church area um, it was overrun with um, with birds, with like pigeons, and there was pigeon droppings everywhere up there. It was, it was. I mean, it, like the the woman from the agency actually said, "I didn't realize how bad this was." They come to us; we don't always go to them. And so, the fact that she had to walk out for a moment just to compose herself um, said quite a bit to me. And as I was talking with you know with these these folks, um, just listening to them. You know, say like, is this like, this shouldn't be, this is what we can afford, but this shouldn't be our lives. And um, it was only, and so we wrote the story and we had these photos and, um, and we did video with them and they were all very willing to talk. But I just walked out of there thinking like that, that can't, how is that right? How is that right that someone lives like that? And um, the, the follow up though to that story was that um, one of the key people involved, uh, one of those, one of the men that we in interviewed who um, who who was indigenous? He was actually, I think, he was Mi'kmaq from um, from out east. And I got, I remember it was just before Christmas time. I think it was a year later, um, or a couple months later. I, I, the the exact year escapes me right now. But I remember being on my way to a a Christmas party with my spouse, um, and on the way, my phone buzzed. And you know, we got out of the car. I took a look, and it was an email from someone saying are you able to help me because, uh, because he's died and, and we're trying to connect with his, his home community. And I, I, I didn't have that many details about his home community because of the time we have, but it was just this, um, even though the story itself and what we wrote about the time really did stick with me, it was that follow-up that hit me as well, that here was a guy who, you know, at the time had really, I mean, he had lost his partner and he was really feeling down he had a puppy that was keeping him company, I remember, in this rooming house. And then here he was, you know, months, months later, and he, he died. So I think it was of an overdose. And it just, it, it was just one of those things that stuck with me about, you can, you know, a story is not something you tell once. A story, there, you know, you may catch a sliver in time as a reporter, but, you know, these stories go on. And there are people who are affected by it after, before you have arrived and after you leave. And, um... And so I think that that drove a lot of the, the thinking we had at the time about how do we cover this issue. And it continued to drive a lot of the thinking we had um, about how to cover this issue, even beyond, you know, after that, that I got that Christmas email um, that was, you know, a, a, hard, a hard ending in some ways to, um, to, that, to that piece. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, 
Complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Yes, and unfortunately, uh, far too often uh, do you hear some of that. And I think, you know, you bring up a bit of what I think uh, most Canadians, one of the big, one of the reasons we do this podcast, um, we talk and, and uh, do this. And one of the biggest uh, challenges for us in this sector is that I think Canadians are kind, they're good uh, in general, but most have no idea the type of crisis we're facing across Canada. In fact, right now, you know, yes, housing we've seen in the, the uh, release budget across housing is top of mind. But when people think of housing, they're saying, I can't afford to buy a house, the cost of rent, but not necessarily homelessness. But when they do learn, I find as you know, or when they're hit with these stories and the stories you tell, uh, people are very generous. They want to respond. They just don't know because often across this uh, massive country of ours is very hidden uh, where we are in York region. Uh, York region's nine municipalities is huge. It's spread out uh, for the longest time. People just didn't think it was an issue because it wasn't like the down, you know, streets of downtown where you see uh, a homelessness uh, up front and, and close, right? But it uh, actually does exist. So the stories you tell uh, are, are hugely, hugely uh, important. Now let's talk about. I remember talking with uh, with you a few years back. Uh, there, just after I think. Uh, the change uh, in government when the liberals were there. And, and you, you kind of mentioned some differences to me. You said, you know, when uh, the conservatives were in, you know, this is kind of, you know, how it changed for uh, me when, when doing my, my job and, and when the liberals are in. And, and so you've had time now with a few different parties on Parliament Hill and changing this. How does it change? How is it different? Can you expand a little bit on that? Well, I think that um, what's happened over the past couple of years is there has been a bit of a move towards, at least from my perspective, maybe talking a little more about about the policy as opposed to the politics behind it. Um, there is always this tension, obviously, on Parliament Hill between the politicking, the partisanship and the need to actually create policy. And then what is it that you are trying to do? But I think that over time, I've seen at least people and from this is from all parties be more willing to engage on those policy points and trying to exp and, and getting off the top, the partisan talking points and saying, what is it that makes a good policy right now? What is it that we know can actually work? And what is it that we know that doesn't work? I mean, uh, when you think about, for instance, I know that the, the previous conservative government gets, doesn't get a lot of credit for some of the things that it does. And it rightfully gets a lot of criticisms for some of the things that it did. But, you know, I think they were the, you know, um, they did housing first. You know, they they adopted that mentality during, and adopted that policy. It wasn't maybe well thought out and it wasn't as robust as we see it now, but it was a stepping stone at the time. And so that, I think, gives you a sense of how things kind of develop, is that maybe one government starts something and another government then picks it up. The, the child benefit is another example. Um, the previous conservative government had the, um, the, the universal child care benefit. I mean, it went to everybody, and it maybe wasn't very well targeted, but but then it started getting targeted. It began getting in, you know income tested, targeted on need, and there has been a measurable impact on poverty rates. You know, the same thing could be you talk you talk about the um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use the old acronym for it the um, the working income tax benefit, right? There's another example of things that have helped the working poor that the previous conservative government started and then got expanded by the liberals a few years later. And actually, I remember writing about that coming out of one budget and 
one of the people who was working, who had worked for uh, for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper on this, actually said to me on the phone, he's like, I'm really happy they did this. This is great. He's like, this is going to have a, a huge effect on people in, you know, in, in particularly, you know, those low income and, you know, working poor. He said, it's just going to be a really big, you know, he's like, it's just going to be a big pain in the butt to explain it to people because it's so complicated. But, you know, those are the things that I think I've seen happen is there has been a willingness from parties to to at least accept some other ideas, maybe a little more, even though there is the partisan sniping in public. Um, and there has been a, a, an interest in trying to address some of those key concerns. Now, that said, you know, I'm also aware that that when these parties and when these governments come up with policies, they are thinking about they're thinking about votes. They are thinking about how, you know, what is it that we need to get? It's why, as you rightly point out, you know, why are they talking about housing right now and owning a, and home ownership as opposed to creating more rental, for instance, right? And talking more about that when we have a need for rental um, in this country. Those are the kind of, so what is it that's driving that? Well, I mean, we have uh, millennials are the largest, you know, generational cohort right now. They want to buy things. They, they tend to vote. So you can see parties trying to latch on to some of those concerns. And so I think that that's, so even though that is still there, I will say that there has been a much broader interest, I think, in having some policy discussions, at least from my perspective, which uh, maybe when I started, there, there wasn't that, that interest. They were just partisan talking points. Now people seem to be a little more interested in let's have a conversation about what makes good policy for this country. Fantastic. Now we were talking about we we're talking about government last week, and now by the time this podcast drops, it will be a few weeks out. There was a big budget drop. It was an exciting budget. Um, I, I think for for our sector, anyways, uh, very exciting. Can you talk about uh, what you saw as some of the biggest surprises uh, in that budget, and then on the flip side, uh, what what have you heard, or what do you think are some of the biggest disappointments? Well, I think that. For starters, the thing that's kind of surprised me was how much there was still there to try to accelerate some of the work that had already been done. So I think the the rapid housing initiative I thought was a good a good surprise to see in there that there was more money going towards that. I mean, given how it has been oversubscribed, it has gone past its expectations as far as the units built yeah. every round that it has done. And that that is a good sign. I think that that is also maybe gives a bit of a look ahead to what more this government may do on that front and what CMHC may be interested in doing as well, just given how 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 easily in some ways it is able to get things done as opposed to some of the other processes and programs in place that could take years, right, before. And I think the, the example you used in York region, I mean, 20, 24 to 36 months and being able to get it done in a year and a half, that really shows you just how quickly you can get things done when you actually have the program to do it. And so I think that that was a, those kind of programs like the housing accelerator fund, for instance, as another example, those are things that are going to be good news for uh, province, for municipalities in particular, where they ha they hold a lot of the keys to unlocking housing development. That is all good. The, the, the fact that this government decided to, you know, say we're going to double housing starts, we want to, we want to really push this. Listen, that's, that's good aspirationally. Uh, it's, it's, it's a much tougher job to put into practice. But all of that is, I think, good news on a uh, on a broad scope. The thing that I was looking for, and I I saw it a little bit, but I wasn't really I thought was a bit would be a, dis a disappointment to people in the sector was uh, on urban indigenous housing. I mean, this has been a long-standing issue 
about how do you address, uh, how do you provide, you know, how do you provide housing that is that accommodates their needs, but also is um, is culturally appropriate for you know for urban, rural, and northern Indigenous who are not subject to one of the three distinction-based strategies that we already have. The fact those strategies were topped up with some more money. I mean, that's that's good news because those are the most acute, some of the most acute housing situations in the country and definitely need to be addressed. But I think, you know, 300 million or so for um, to, to work on a plan for urban indigenous when it's something that you promised in 2019. It's something that has been discussed behind the scenes for a couple of years and maybe is a little closer to fruition than it had been, you know, just two, two or three years ago. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think will 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 be a bit of a disappointment that there wasn't something a little more on that but it means that maybe potentially in the next budget cycle you could see that plan laid out and saying okay now we're going to start rolling out the money and finding the space in the fiscal framework to actually put the money behind this and as they say fill in the final piece of the national housing strategy oh for sure i mean that's a disappointment i i hear that loud and clear and i and that's what i think uh, some of the uh, groups around this, the National Housing Council has said, we want, you know, if you're going to do this, do this right. We want $6 billion and to get uh, $300 million was, they're saying, is, is not really going to scratch the surface. But what I've heard also is there's a, a lot of this in the budget. It's a start um, and it's, we're moving forward. We're not moving back. Um, people have said, though, I heard last week too, they're saying in this budget, hey, this is the last big spending budget for a while. Get ready. The next couple of years are going to be uh, very, very tough. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. I mean, it's been a little un unpredictable. You never know what, what can happen. But yeah, I think a lot of good things coming out of it and some disappointments as well. Uh, so let's let's switch gears a little bit from government and talk a little bit about housing and homelessness. Uh, uh, in your time, um, and you touched on some of these, in your time uh, reporting on this, there are big been some huge advances, right? I think starting with the 217 uh, national uh, strategy um, uh, on homelessness. Uh, what do you think are some of the biggest advances that you've reported on uh, to end homelessness? And, and what are some of the areas you think that still need a lot of work? So I'd say that actually one of the one of the ones that doesn't get a lot of attention, and I remember writing about this when um, Jean-Yves Duclos was the social development minister, is about data and uh, the, the the point in time counts that are now nationally organized. And, you know, obviously there are some, there's, I know the, the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness, you know, they, you know, they have their own point in time count as well that supplements some of this data, but having now a nationally coordinated point in time count every couple of years, I think has really now helped the federal government get a better sense of what exactly is going on getting more data from shelters and trying to figure out, okay, what is going on, for instance, with with in, not just indigenous shelter users, but veterans and trying to understand the different um, the different communities and the different groups that make up that that cohort of people who are considered homeless. I, that I think has been a huge advantage and a huge step forward for the, for for governments and for planning when you're trying to make evidence based decision decisions. You need the evidence and so having all of that and seeing statistics canada rethink some of how it's doing you know data collection and what products it's putting out all of that i think really now feeds into an ecosystem where policy making can be done at a much broader level where you are much more maybe not broader sorry but much more detailed level the thing though that i think you're that is still is still something that this government has to work on is 
is on the is on actual construction, right? I mean, the federal government doesn't necessarily build houses, right? It doesn't build yeah. buildings. It provides the funding. It provides the financial means for to do so. You know, it doesn't necessarily buy. It doesn't pay for infrastructure investments. You know, necessarily when it comes to some of these developments. So if you're talking about a development in Iqaluit, as this government has talked about. Well, you need the water system, for instance, to be expanded so that it can handle more homes yeah. being attached to it and more buildings. I mean, these are the kind of things that need to have more of an intersectional approach from a from a funding perspective from this government. And, you know, then as well, when you're talking about, you know, who I mean, we mentioned this a second ago, that it's municipalities that really control a lot of the zoning and land use planning. And so the federal government doesn't have really a, a lot of say in that they've they can they can push they can incentivize but it's up to the municipalities to make those decisions so really i think that what you've seen over time and what i think this government is still trying to and, and not just this government but you know, governments that will follow it is trying to figure out how do you turn those aspirational ideas into concrete actions when there are various levels of government involved and everybody has the same goal but not necessarily everybody is on the same the same page about what they want to do those are the kind of things I think are still hurdles for this government, even though, like I said, now they have the data at least to make to come up with some really detailed plans and provide us with one of the most detailed pictures yet about how how we are doing as a country when it comes to not only homelessness but affordable housing as well. Yeah, data uh, data absolutely matters, and I'll give you a quick example of that. We were talking about with the point of time counts. Uh, the Reach of York is looking at building a new men's emergency and transitional housing site um, and you know for them they said that looking at that point in time count 17 percent of people who were um, in that count identified as indigenous so 17 percent of that men's emergency should of men um, that to, will so they're going to dedicate and make sure at least 70 percent of the beds will be so it, it matters right it, it, to good good decision making uh as well. And it's interesting what you say. I mean, I think sometimes sound bites and, and kind of those bumper sticker things around, hey, we're going to add uh, X number of homes. You're right. That's not fully within your control. You know, that flows through the province and then the province has to work with in York region alone, right? Nine municipalities, all with different, you know, uh, councils and zoning and, and so so uh, in different flavors. Right. So it's not that simple. You're right. Here's the funding. Does that funding make it all the way through? What people do with that funding? Is the infrastructure in place? Um, so it's a lot more complicated. And I remember uh, when we had uh, Adam Vaughn on the predecessor podcast of this out of the blue, he said that he said, you don't realize that it really does take all levels of government working together. And that's not always the easiest thing uh, for that to happen. So yes, uh, very true. Um, all right, so let's talk about, we there recently uh, NDP liberals came together uh, we're we're going to have a government at least, I think, um, until uh, 2025. Uh, what does that coming together, what effect, what does that mean for housing and homelessness across Canada? Well, I think that one, the, the, the simple answer is there's going to be a lot more focus on that because the New Democrats in the election promised quite a bit on housing and we're going, and not necessarily housing towards you know, home ownership, but affordable housing units, because you want, because there is a, there is a problem in there. And, but I mean, for instance, in, in this, uh, in this budget, the, the, the NDP were able to get out of the liberals, 
some money for through the Canada Housing Benefit, right? As to make sure that people who've been affected by higher rents are able to offset some of those costs and offset some of the higher costs that we're all facing. Um, all of that together says something about what the NDP are likely to see, what we are likely to see more of over the course of this agreement. And so I think that you're going to see a, a larger focus on how are you going to provide those, not just build more units, but maybe how do we provide direct subsidies for those low-income families who need some help, be it on the housing benefit, be it on dental care, uh, potentially pharmacare sometime in the, in the future. How are we going to start making it so that we maybe work on the margins to actually lift them out of housing need, out of core housing needs, so that suddenly instead of them spending you know, 30%, uh, they have maybe additional income actually sitting around to able to be able to manage their housing costs because they're now not just dealing with dental, you know, pharma, pharmaceuticals, you know, other drugs, that we're actually helping them on that and be able to lift more people out of core housing need, which is, I mean, that's CMHC's goal for 2030, make sure everybody in the country has a home that meets their needs and is affordable to them. That's a, that's a big aspirational goal. And I remember talking with Evan Siddall about this when he was uh, the head of, of CMHC and he talked, he said, listen, it, we don't have all the answers about how we're going to get there right now, but if we don't set that, we're never going to get there. And so I think that that's, that we may actually get closer to that goal over the next couple of years as the new Democrats and liberals work together, particularly as the NDP are most likely going to start saying, no, you, we don't want you to spend on this. We need you to spend here. We need to see this in your budget for us to, to support it. And so I think that, I think you're going to see a little more movement on that between now and 2025. Uh, movement that is very, very much needed. I, there's a report the Globe and Mail's had a couple of weeks ago where it said to, in order, if you're going to spend 30%, your threshold on housing, what you're supposed to spend on housing, um, you need to have an income, household income of $90,000, right? For a one bedroom apartment in the GTA, 70,000 in most parts of Canada and 90,000 in the cities. And, and, you know, from my, where, where I'm sitting, where, you know, people working with Ontario Works uh, or supports or have $8,000 or disability, $13,000, a massive gap that needs to be filled. Those RGI type of units, et cetera. So let, let's hope they, they push a little harder. I believe too, that the, the supports that rolled down, uh, that was one of the disappointments too. I think it was $500 a year, which would roll out to just, you know, uh, just over $40 a month uh, for people that gap in rent. Uh, isn't the hundreds of dollars. So it's really, you know, it's a way it's, it's, it's forward. It's something. Uh, but I think that's what hearing what we, we heard a lot and we'll continue to hear is we're not there yet. Right now you mentioned mm -hmm. 2030. No, I, I would agree with you. Yeah. Sorry. I, we, we mentioned 2030. Oh. Um, we want to end homelessness, right? The government has set uh, a goal of ending homelessness. Uh, are we on track, you know, covering this for this long? Do you believe, is it just, hey, let's set a benchmark and hope we, you know, uh, progress? Or do you believe that really can happen? You know, it's it's easy to get cynical about these things. And particularly as, as a journalist covering it, it's easy to say, oh, this is just, you know, this is just bluster from politicians who are all trying to show that they can do something. Um, and then they don't really do it. But I actually, one of the things that I've tried to do through my career is, really be, be positive in my outlook on things and say, maybe it is possible. Maybe we can actually do this. And it's just a question of, you know, it's, it's, it's just a question of what do we need to, what do we still need to get there? I actually think it's possible. You know, in a country like this that has done so many different things, 
There's so many people. And I love that my dog now wants to get out of the room. <laughs> so if you give me just one second before he keeps barking. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Cormac. Hey, go. Ah, working from home. It's always a delight. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, <laughs> by the way, my dog, for anybody wondering, is named Cronkite. Um, so we call him the real news hound around here. Um, but I, I, I'm, I have to have a positive outlook on things because otherwise you can just get bogged down in, 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 in being cynical. So I actually think it is possible. I think that it's possible that as we, you know, when you look at, for instance, child poverty rates, you know, the, they were stubborn for a long time. They were on their way down. But then you saw, you know, what happened with, the, with child benefits and suddenly those poverty rates have, have plummeted. Um, that's positive news, right? Like the, I, I, you know, I have to give the government some credit for that. Um, and in some of my stories, I was critical about some of their, their figures when they first came in, when the liberals first came in and how are they actually going to do this and how are they calculating the impacts? And, you know, when I saw the numbers, I, I had to write the story that well, they did it. Um, and so I think that when you see things like that, when you can see people finding a home, when you can see, for instance, benefits going to, to renters who need it, uh, so they can get out of, a of an RGI unit and then maybe be able to go into the, the private market and open that unit up for someone else. When you see a government that's now actually gonna provide some rental benefits to um, to veterans, which has been a really successful program in the United States, for instance. I, I mean, you kind of look at it and say, okay, well, we're, we're making progress. It may not be, it may not be as fast as, you know, we're not moving like Usain Bolt here. It may be a little slower like me running the 100 meters. But, you know, it is it is still something that we're making some progress on. And so um, and so for that reason, I do have a positive outlook that maybe by 2030 we will get there. And even if we don't, you know, even if we fall short, it's, you know, as I tell my as I tell my daughters, it's better to set the bar high and fall short than set the bar really low and be able to step over it. Yeah. yeah. Well said. Well said. And you know what? I think if we learned anything during the pandemic, too, with political will and the resources, this sector can move quick right we saw hotels open new sites open as i said within 18 months uh, 18 units moving so we can move fast it can be done uh for people who are cynical this can be done this is a very solvable issue uh, it, it takes political will it takes communities it takes a lot of money but it's very solvable well listen you know what? it's been no, great I... chatting with you oh go ahead wait wait no, in. i was just gonna say i think you know I, I probably should quote, you know, Tim Richter here, right? Because, you know, you know, well, because Tim always says this, right? Like, it, you know, homelessness was not some, you know, we, we got into the situation because of policy decisions uh, and we can get out of this through policy decisions. And you know, that's the message I know he's always said to me that everyone has said to me is like, this is a solvable situ. This is a solvable issue. It's just, you know, and so I think that that so that's why um, that's why I'm always happy to talk to people about policy and to ask government people about walk me through this policy because inevitable, inevitable, you know, inevitably, sorry, they, um, they, they say how they're moving and how they're trying to address something. And they, they will rightfully say, we know there are other issues and we're going to try to deal with them, but we can only handle so many, there's only so many things you could do at once. Um, and I think that they, they try to do that in a, in a pretty, in a pretty thoughtful manner. There are people in government who really do great work and really think deeply about these things. And it's not just a, a file for them to push. It is how do we really help people? Um, and it's, and so, and so I think, you know, having spoken with them, you know, some of them on the record, some of them off the record, um, that's what I think kind of underlines some of my positivity that like Jim said, policy has gotten us here, but policy can get us out of it as well. 
Yeah, and usually that uh, people bring out the graphs and show from the 90s how uh, homelessness climbed with uh, the results of bad policy. You're absolutely right. I want to thank you for all you do for this uh, sector, reporting on it, bringing us the news, telling us those stories. It, it certainly helps us. Uh, we take those stories and we relate them out and we make change happen. So it's appreciated. Thank you for all you do. Thanks for being here today. I'm looking forward to chatting with you more in the future. Yeah, awesome. Michael, thank you so much and, and thanks to, to everyone. Uh, it's been, uh, it, it is always, a, it has been and, and continues to be a pleasure to talk to you, to talk to everybody else in the sector, just to hear those stories and, you know, be, and, and I have to say, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't write any stories and journalists, Journalists cannot, cannot write studies unless people speak with them. And so um, really it is a testament to, to the change that you guys make, uh, but also a testament to your willingness to speak to reporters that I think helps, uh, you know, helps in, in that change. So um, I don't think I need any thanks as a reporter. I think everybody, you know, everybody who has spoken with me really, really deserves all of that. Well said. Thanks for joining us today. Well, look at that. Another great guest, another great podcast. Um, listen, you know, I, I love speaking with uh, journalists who cover the housing and homelessness sector, the stories they hear, the people they talk with, the insight that they have. I always find uh, extremely fascinating. Uh, another great guest on the way home. We want to thank you for joining us for today's podcast. Share it widely and stay tuned next week for another episode that will drop uh, on the way home. We'll see you then. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.